Well, welcome everybody. You can uh, find your seats and finish up your conversations and try to remember people's names when you see them at the end of service. Good luck with that. I'm terrible. So um, if you've got your Bibles, as you find your seat, you can uh, turn to the book of Luke. Uh, we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 3 um, in our series that we're going to start. Jason kind of stole my thunder a little bit uh, in letting you guys know this. But our series is called Seek and to Save. Seek and to Save. And this, this comes from Luke 19.10. Luke 19.10, which we'll read in a second, says the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's your memory verse. Okay, so over the next 13 weeks, as we're in the book of Luke, for the next 13 weeks this fall, we're working through it, you have a job. It's to memorize just a few words. Luke 19.10, okay, is what you're going to memorize. If you can't do that, that's, that's pretty sad, right? The best way to memorize scripture, to be honest with you, is put it on a post-it note and put it on your mirror, because that's probably what you look at the most often, right? Or put it on the back of your phone, because that's just, you look there a lot too. Okay, maybe put it as your screensaver on your phone. So when you turn it on, there, there's this theme verse. And I promise you, within 13 weeks, it'll be memorized. You'll have it, no problem, okay? And the Son of Man, that's the theme of Luke. Luke uses this term for the Son of God, Jesus, uses this term that he is the Son of Man. It's an Old Testament term that refers to the Messiah. It refers to a special person coming, so, so this term that Luke uses is he's trying to back up the personhood of Jesus being God in the flesh. And so he's talking about this son of man. And you'll see this mentioned over and over and over again in the book of Luke. The son of man, the son of man. That's why our theme verse even says the son of man, right, came to seek and to save the lost. And so we're going to be working through that. This morning, what we're going to look at is what then should we do? If it's true, if it's true that Jesus himself came to seek and to save that which was lost, okay? If this is true, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost, to save the lost. What, what should we do about that message? What, 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 what should we do with it? And that's what we want to look at uh, this morning. Now, this is weird because normally when we work through a book of, Bi of the Bible, we don't start in chapter 3, right? We start at the beginning of the book and work our way through. The reason we're doing that, and I decided this a couple of months ago, is at the end of the book of Luke, it's the Christmas season, right? It's the Festival of Lights. It's the Feast of Dedication in the Old Testament. It's, it, it's the season of Christ's birth when the world is remembering that this guy that's supposed to be the Son of God was born, Right? So it doesn't make much sense to do chapters 1 and 2 that talk about the birth of Jesus. Now, I'll just save it for later. Not to mention, starting in chapter 3 of Luke is exactly where John the Baptist, or where John, the apostle, starts his gospel. So if you read the gospel of John, he starts in Luke chapter 3, basically. His story starts where Luke chapter 3 starts, because John doesn't talk about the birth or early years of Jesus. So really, we're just starting the series kind of where the book of John starts. And then we're going to come back and grab chapters 1 and 2 at the end so that we're not like repeating it, if that makes sense. I know that's unusual. It might freak you out a little bit, but that's what we're doing. Trust me, it'll work, okay? Um, and so we're diving in. Now, here's, here we go. Chapter 3, verse 1. 
In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judah, Herod was, tet Herod was tetriarch of Galilee. His brother Philip, tetriarch of the region of Etchura, and Trachonitis, and Lysinius, tetriarch of Abilene. You got all that? You, you got all those? Okay. During the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, God's word came to the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, it says, about John the Baptist. Like, so we've got this story that begins really, yes, it begins with the birth of Jesus. You can read about it in Luke. It begins with the early years of Jesus a little bit. But really where the story picks up and the rest of the gospel is right here. And it's interesting that Luke starts out with these incredible details. These are not made up people. These are people that Roman history writes about, that you can go read about these people in Roman history. They exist. They, they, they've lived. They, they did what Luke says they did. Because see, Luke is a physician. He's very accurate. He's trying to write a very detailed book about who Jesus is. And so he starts out very detailed because that's just like he is. And it's interesting because if you're not telling the truth, you don't want to put details like this. You want to just start with like, yeah, I met this guy and he was really cool. You don't want to say like, here's all the details of exactly when and how this went down and I'm going to lay it out for you. You can check me on the information. That's exactly what Luke does. He's like, I'm going to lay it down for you how this works. Now you got to remember, he says Herod was tetriarch of Galilee. There are multiple Herods. When you read in scripture, and this is important, Herod the Great, okay, was the first Herod. It was like a dynastic cycle. He built the, the temple, a new temple for the people, the Jews in Judea, in this region. So Herod is kind of this guy that, that they kind of hate because he, he affiliates with the Romans and he's not really fully Jewish. And, and so there's this, there's this war they have, but they're really grateful because Herod built them a temple that they didn't have and, and kind of leveraged it, but he built it so that he could, it was a political move. And the temple that he built didn't even have the Ark of the Covenant in it. So God's presence wasn't even in it. He built this temple and it wasn't like this is what God said to do. It was a political move by a political leader to get the believers, so to speak, or the people that said they were believers of the day to agree with him. Does that sound like anything familiar in our political system today? There's nothing new under the sun. This is what happens. That, that believers get taken advantage of and they fall for it and they're in. And so Luke starts out with saying, look, Herod's line, this is the, another Herod that's going on. And he gives these details to make sure you know who are the players. Because these players, as we go through the book of Luke, you're going to hear many of their names again. And they play important roles in the life of Jesus and in the history and accuracy of the scriptures and what Luke lays out. Now, this is interesting. It starts with John. This is John the Baptist. He was a cousin to Jesus. He was the, the one that, that came before. We'll read in a second. And it says he's in the wilderness in all the vicinity of the Jordan. We just went through this summer the book of what? Anybody? Deuteronomy. We went through the book of Deuteronomy this summer. I'm glad you know that at least, okay? We did the whole book of Deuteronomy through the summer. You can go back and listen to the podcast if you missed that. John is right where the people were in the book of Deuteronomy at this moment. He is in the wilderness at the edge of the Jordan. 
proclaiming his message. A very similar message to what Moses and Joshua proclaimed to the people of their day. It's, it's the same picture. And John didn't like accidentally go there. Like, well, this seems like the best place to start a ministry. I'll just kind of start something here. This was intentional. God is giving a reminder to his people, like, you got to remember where you came from and where we're headed. You came from slavery and nowhere, crossed the Jordan because it's split in two and Joshua crosses, goes across, and I've got a mission for you to accomplish. John is laying the groundwork like Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, did for us right here. And he's giving the same message Moses gave. It's a miracle. It's amazing when you think about that and what's happening here. And so how do we know that God's word came to John? Have you ever heard someone say, I've got a word from God, right? There were some crazy people who had words from God, just so you know. David Koresh had a word from God. He was the new Messiah. That's what his word from God was. He was Jesus. How do we know he wasn't Jesus? I mean, if he felt like he was Jesus, maybe he was, right? I mean, maybe. How do, how do we know? I mean, Muhammad had a word from God, saw an angel of light. How do we know Muhammad's not from God, that he didn't have a word from God? Buddha had a word from supernatural powers, the eternal essence. How do we know his word from? And that's where John's at. How do we know this John guy who's dressed in camel skin, like, or goat skin and, and like, eating locusts and honey for his meals. How many of you are in for that? Like, I want to follow a guy that goes out and catches locusts and fights beehives for honey and dips them. Like, that's, that's the kind of dinner I want to go to. Let's go have regroup with John. That'd be fun, right? What's for dinner, locusts and honey? What's for dinner, locusts and honey, right? Like, like this, this is John. And so how do we know that it's a word from God? Well, let me give you some quick things and not a false word. Number one, it's recorded in the Bible. That's thing one. God recorded this in his holy word and has preserved it for thousands of years accurately. That's thing one. Thing two, it was confirmed by John's lifestyle and obedience. John is not doing this ministry to make a million bucks. He's eating locusts and honey and wearing animal skins. And like when we read his message, not a popular message. He ends up being killed and his head cut off for the message he gave. Not, he ends up creating an empire and, and then giving that empire to his sons and daughters that he had and his wife and his family. That is not what happens to John. So, so that's thing two. Thing three, it was prophesied earlier. We'll see in a minute that John was going to do this. Number four, he wasn't stoned. If you were a false prophet in this day, they stoned you. Like they had a way to go through the Old Testament to prove if you were an old prophet or not. And, and listen, the religious leaders of the day took a lot of pride in killing people that way. Like they liked it. It was one of those things where it's like, let's get us another false prophet today. Let's go find one and stone him. That'll be fun. At one point in scripture, they picked up stones to stone Jesus because they thought he was a false prophet. Like, so they didn't stone him. He was allowed to do his ministry. The person who put him in jail, we'll find in a moment, was not the religious leaders. It was Herod. The religious leaders left him alone when they could have killed him if he was a false prophet. His willingness to stand for what was right with no earthly, earthly gain, and his message wasn't manipulative or mysterious. It was very simple and very clear. 
John didn't come with some mysterious, I have a new word and it's crazy. And he came with a very simple, straightforward, old, like Bible message. Here it is. And just left it there. And lastly, at the end of John's life, he was totally humble and said, I must decrease so that Jesus, the Son of Man, may increase. And he told all of his followers to stop following him and to follow Jesus. Everything he built, he just turned over. By faith. Listen, that's a lot of proof of someone who's not messing around. And so you've got to take what John says carefully. It says he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight, every valley will be filled, every mountain and hill will be made low, the crooked will become straight, the rough way smooths, and everyone will smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. This is Isaiah prophesying about who John is. And Luke is saying, look, all of us understand that this guy that Isaiah is talking about hundreds and hundreds of years earlier is John. He came to make a straight path for the Messiah, for the Son of God. He's going to make it really clear who really believes and who really doesn't, who's really repentant, who really wants to follow, and who really is just trying to find the next Messiah they can use for their own benefit who's really surrendered, and who isn't. That's what John's doing. That's why he's preaching a baptism of repentance. The baptism is that symbol that we still use today that says, I'm going to go under the water, and, and it's a symbol of my death, and I'm going to come up out of the water as a symbol of the resurrection and new life. And one day I'm going to be buried under the ground, and then I'm going to come back and have a new body. That's the Bible. And so John lays this out. And look, he's not preaching love, love, everything's going to be okay. Let's just kumbaya and come together. He's saying, you got to repent or you are not forgiven. There is no forgiveness without repentance. And repentance means turning. It means I'm going this way with my life and God is speaking and I see him in the word and I have to do a 180 and I have to trust him and surrender my life to him. That's repentance. And he says, if you're not willing to do that, there's, there's no forgiveness. You're going to stand before God one day, and, and, and he can't forgive that. And so that's what John is preaching. And he's using Scripture to do it. And here's the great part, is he says, the goal of John's ministry, you ready for this? Is to make clear, very clear, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus' name means. Jesus' name in Hebrew means Yahweh saves. So when it says, see the salvation of God, you're going to see Yahweh who saves. It's not an accident that term is used. John is paving the way saying, you better get ready because he's coming. Listen, if you are a believer, a Christian, if you're not a Christian and this is all news to you, like what I'm telling you, you're like, wow, this is a lot. Let me explain to you that Christians believe that Jesus came once, he died, he came back to life, he transcended to heaven, and he's coming again. And we are supposed to be getting ourselves ready and getting other people ready to meet him, to, to get ready to want to be with him, like a wedding, like two people engaged, ready, waiting for the wedding to come, Revelation says. Like that, that's what we should be getting ready for, excited about. 
if that makes sense. And that's what John is sharing with these people. He then said to the crowds who came to be baptized by him, look at this. This is the worst message ever. He's got crowds coming out to hear his message. I mean, he is a popular, like people want to hear this, and this is his message. Listen, I used to think, until I did this study through Luke, I always thought that only in the Bible were the religious leaders referred to as a brood of vipers. That means you guys are a bunch of snakes. That is, that's kind of offensive. If someone were to walk up to you and be like, hi, how are you? And, and then, I'm, I'm good, I'm Matt, I'm, hi, I'm John. You're, you're like a snake. You're just a snake. You don't even, what? You don't even know me that well. You can't just declare that. That's what he does. This is the worst message ever for attracting a crowd and trying to get people to buy into your message. That's partly why it's true. Because the only way anybody believes this message is if God is actually working on their heart. Right? Because if someone comes up to you and does this and God hasn't been working on you, you're like, man, I, you're right. I've been thinking about that. I am a snake. I've been treating my wife and kids and my friends and my job. I'm, I'm a terrible person. What do I do? Right? Most people don't have that response. They're like, how dare you judge me? John's like, you brood of vipers. He says, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Not God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not a bad message. It's an important message. But John's message is, look, you guys say you're believers. John isn't preaching to lost people. John isn't going to North Africa to give this message. John is speaking to people who know what being by the Jordan and crossing over it and being baptized means. It means a surrender, and they aren't surrendered to the God of the universe. And John is looking at them and saying, look, you guys are coming out here. Who warned you to flee from it? What are you scared of? What are you running from? What, what won't you deal with in your life? Why do you just, every time you're in trouble, you come out and you come back to God? Right? Oh, I'm in trouble again. Here I am again, God. I'm in trouble again. Here I am again, God. He's like, who warns you to flee from that? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. He says, look, I know you guys are getting baptized. You're going under the water and coming out. I know that you think, oh, yeah, I'm forgiven. He says, hold on. There's, a, there's, there's one more thing you need to check in your heart. Are you really, truly producing fruit? Do you see your life changing? Do you see fruit coming out of you that you're like, wow, I don't even know how this is happening. I'm just watching God change my life, which is evidence of the fact that you really did repent. That's what John's message is. And then he says, and don't start, look at this, and don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Even now the ax is ready to strike the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John, this is not how you start a campus ministry. Bad move. Like this, this is like that street preacher at the clock. Like this is not like, but you got to remember who he's speaking to. He's not speaking to a bunch of lost people at a clock. He is speaking to believers who should know better, who say they know God and are not walking with him. And he's like, I'm, I got to get you ready. I, I got to deal with what's going on in your heart. And he says, look, you think you're saved. You think you're walking with God. You think you're good because I just baptized you. Uh, you better check your heart. How'd you do after you left here la yesterday and went home and now you come back? Like, do you see some change happening? Do you see a different perspective? He's looking and he says, look, 
Because there's this idea of covenant baptism in our culture. You baptize infants, right? That we baptize infants, and it's a symbol of we're baptizing them in the covenant, in the family, and we're raising them to believe in Jesus. Just know that that is not the baptism of the Bible. It's not. The, the baptism of infants didn't come along until hundreds of years later after kind of acts and everything else. The model in scripture were people who had the intellect to believe. That could be a five-year-old. That could be a 55-year-old. Someone who, who made the choice to repent, you baptize them. Does that make sense? That's the scriptural model. The reason infant baptism really came up is because we had to figure out a way to dedicate children because the pagan religions were dedicating children. And to compete with the pagan religions, we got to do something that tells them we love their kids. And, and they even charged for it at one time in the Catholic Church. You had to pay to have your child baptized. Like, it's crazy when you look at the history. What John is saying is, look, this is about you, your heart. What are is in your heart. He says, look, if anybody didn't need to be baptized as a believer, it's someone who knew they were a child of Abraham and had the Old Testament memorized, which most of the Jews did. If anybody was under the covenant baptism and didn't need to be baptized again, it's these people. And John's like, no, you, 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 need, you need to publicly repent in front of all your family, in front of all your community, and all the believers that say they believers because you're, you're not there yet. And trust me, they would have hated this message. This would have been a very hard message. So then you have these people who repent. And here's how I know this is what John's talking about. Look, verse 10. The second that John says you need to produce fruit worthy of repentance, looks what, look at what he says. The first question they ask is, oh, then what should we do? Good question. Good question. You've committed your life to Christ, to, 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 to God, to Yahweh, who's going to save you. And in the Old Testament, they committed themselves to Yahweh, who is going to come and save them. We commit ourselves to Yahweh, who saved us. And we all look forward to when he comes to save us finally in heaven. That's the story of Scripture. The whole narrative right there. And he looks and he says, these people immediately get it. They're like, wait a minute. We may not know him. What should we do if, if we're unsure? The crowds were asking him. He replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. That is such a simple message. You got two shirts? Yeah. Well, give one away. Love people. It's not your shirt. Everything you have is God's now, because you surrender to God's, which means he gets everything. He gets all of you, all your stuff. So just give. That, that's a good sign that you understand who God is, because God is a giver. He's given us creation. He's given us the stars. He's given us food. He's given us rain. He's given, he's given us everything. Maybe it's just give. And then the next person asks, I love this, the tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? And the tax collectors were hated. What should we do? He told them, don't collect any more than what you've been authorized. That's a problem. Because the way the tax collectors made their income was overcharging taxes and skimming some so they could have the lifestyle they wanted. That's how tax collectors had an income to pay for their lifestyle. It's skimming off the top. And he looks at them and he says, oh, it's real simple. Don't leave your career 
wait a minute, if I don't leave my career, but I'm not authorized to take more than you, that, I, I don't know how I support myself. Don't look for yourself. Do what's right by the law, and the law has authorized you to, to collect this amount. Don't take more. He goes on, and he looks, and he told them. Some soldiers also questioned, what should we do? And John said, never be a soldier, because I don't want you to hurt anybody. Is that what it says? Give up being soldiers, because, you know, you don't want to hurt nobody. You, know, just, you be careful. You just want to be friendly and nice. He doesn't tell them to stop soldiering. These are Roman soldiers. Like, these are the greatest killing force on the planet. And he looks at him and he goes, oh, what should we do? He said, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation. Be satisfied with your wages. Do your job. This would have been so offensive because if I'm a soldier and I've, like, committed my life, I'm wanting to leave that lifestyle. I don't want a soldier anymore. I, I want it easier than soldiering. Soldiering's hard. I want John to say, just leave it. You're good. And John's like, no, you got a great opportunity to be a soldier right where you're at. You go in there. Go, go, go. And they're like, uh, but I want out. No, you're not going to get out. He looks at the tax collectors and says, stop collecting taxes. It's evil. The government's evil. They're awful. No, keep doing your job. Just do it differently. Do it with a focus on who God is. This is crazy, this message. This is not going to make John popular at all. And he says, true repentance will bring this kind of fruit. It's a fruit that looks towards others. It's a fruit to say, how can I, can I glorify God in what I do? Because that's what I want. It's not something that says I have to earn. He's not saying if you do this, you'll earn salvation. He's saying if you have salvation, your heart will change and you'll want to live a life like this. It's just that simple. He goes on and he says this. Now, people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were debating in their minds whether John might be the Messiah. I love this. There's all this discussion, right? Isn't this what we do when, when we go to churches or we go to Christian things? Well, is this right? Is that right? Do I like this? Do I like this? I mean, that's what they're doing. They're like debating among themselves. Is, is he really the one? Is this really where I'm supposed to be? All these things. And John answered them, I baptized you with water, but one is coming more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His wintering shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat up in his barn, but the chaff he will burn with a fire that never goes out. Again, that is not a real popular message. I mean, he's like, I'm just preparing the way. Wait, so, so why are we even listening to you if you're not the one? If you, if you can't really give me what I want, then, then why am I even here? Because I'm looking for a place or for looking for someone who will give me what I want. So why did we even get baptized by you then? Like that's what's happening here. They're waiting expectantly thinking John's going to overthrow the Romans because he's talking about fire and war. He, he's going to take on the Romans for us. He's going to be the Messiah because they thought that's what was going to happen. That's not what happened. He goes on and he says, then along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. <laughs> okay, just stop. <laughs> How much good news have you heard in the last, I don't know, 17 verses we've read? Like if you were to say, hey, I got some good news for you, and you said, would you read these verses? Read 3 through 17. Isn't this good news? Fire, hell, you're a viper. Like isn't this good, isn't this good news? Like that's, that's exactly what this passage says. You see, here's the deal. 
You don't know what good news is until you embrace how really bad the news of our world and our creation is. You don't understand how wonderful and beautiful John's message is and how loving and caring and compassionate his message is if you've never embraced the fact that we live in a world that's hell on earth. It is a broken place that will break you. I promise you will be broken in this world. No one gets out alive. Something's going to get you. You will be broken. Your health will be broken. Your, your body will be broken down. It's going to happen. John's just kind of sharing it forward with not a lot of patience. And he looks and he says, I'm just telling you the true news, the good news, that there is another world. There is another opportunity. This isn't all there is. You can live for more. There's more than just what you see. That's John's message. And that's why it's so weird because it's like, well, I don't want to eat locusts and honey and wear skins. And John didn't say they had to. He's just like, I'm willing to do whatever God asked me to do. Because I'm not looking to get something here. I'm not looking to get a great ministry. I'm not looking to get a great wife. I'm not looking to get a great family. I'm not looking to have all the... I'm just looking to go do what God asked me to do. And I know that as I do that, what I get back is just people who can't stand it. And that's the next part. But Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by John about Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things Herod had done, added this to everything else. He locked John up in prison. Later, Herod cuts John's head off, puts it on a platter, and has it paraded into the party he's at. I struggle with that. Because if this book is true and this story is true, I don't know that I want to be John the Baptist. I'm not buying into that. I'm not even sure there's a God who would ask anyone to do that. And if he did, he's cruel and I want nothing to do with him. Unless I understand the scriptures and I understand John's message. You see, what John was beheaded for was something very simple. John was unwilling to compromise on the biblical view of marriage. Herod married someone he should not have been married to. And John confronted it and said, that's not right. Well, but... But my father started the temple and I'm finishing the temple for you all. I'm, I'm a nice guy. I mean, I hold the Bible up. I hold the scriptures up and believe that they're good. Have you ever read them? No, but here they are. I wave them like a banner. Herod's like, I've done so much. Why are you attacking me? I'm a nice guy. No, Herod, you're not. You're wicked. And let me tell you some other things that are wicked about you that need to change. You aren't surrendered and submitted to the God of the universe. And the first way I know it is because you're unwilling to surrender your heart. You're unwilling to repent of what you've done. And John goes to his grave, not fighting for some super spiritual thing other than fighting for the righteousness that God says in the Old Testament. And says, this is what God says and I'm not gonna compromise on what God says. And you need to repent. I don't need to change. Our book doesn't need to change. You need to change, and I'll be praying for you. And when people ask me and say how great you are, I'm going to say, mm, I'm praying for him. I'm not sure he knows the God of the universe. He hasn't repented. And so Herod's like, I don't like that message. I'm going to lock him up. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. Hold on. And he was praying. Heaven opened up, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You're my beloved son. I take delight in you. Wait. 
So if John is baptizing people for repentance, why does Jesus get baptized? He had nothing to repent of. He was perfect. He he was perfect. So why did Jesus have to be baptized? Because if, and and if I'm not, listen, this is the verse, this verse I'm going to share with you next is the verse that caused me to be baptized. I was baptized twice, three times, three different times growing up. As an infant, I was baptized again, and then I was baptized again. None of them took. (laughs) And so when I came to faith in Jesus and surrendered my life at 18 years old, my freshman year of college, to the gospel, to the true message of the hell I was in and the hell I was headed towards, and I surrendered and said, God, save me. I believe you are the one who saves, and I've got no other option. And I cried out to him, and he saved me. I fought getting baptized again because I'm like, I've already done that religious stuff. I've done it three times. It didn't take I'm not going through another religious hoop. That's stupid. Until one day, I was reading this passage. And it's Matthew, oh, sorry, I'll go back. It was Matthew 3. Is it up? Hold on, I'm going. Matthew 3, 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Look at what John says. This is in Matthew. But John tried to stop Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by you. John recognized who he was. He said, I got no business baptizing you, man. You're perfect. You're the son of God. I need you to cleanse me. I really need you to cleanse me. And he says, Jesus answered him, allow it for now, John, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is just the right thing to do. Then he allowed him to be baptized. I read that verse in, South Carolina, in North Carolina at a pastor friend's house that we were on vacation and visiting with, and when I read that verse, I came under such conviction. I walked out to their breakfast table with their family sitting there, and I said, I need to be baptized now. I've been in disobedience. I'm going into ministry. I was going into ministry at that time, and I had not been, I'm like, what am I doing? If, if I stand in a, and say, I'm good, I have salvation, I've accepted Jesus, I don't need to be baptized, That's what the Abraham people said that we read earlier. Jesus, who didn't need to be baptized, was like, I'm just going to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do to repent and say, I believe John and we need to all come under baptism. We need to travel through the waters. And so I'm going to do that. It's the right thing to do. And when that happened, the Spirit came from heaven and descended and God spoke from heaven. It's the first time we see the Trinity together in the Scriptures. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together in that moment say, yeah, that's awesome. I delight in this. I delight in people who just do the right thing when they don't, they don't have to. That's beautiful. Tomorrow night at 6 p.m., there's a young lady who accepted Christ. She surrendered her life to Christ at camp this summer. She went with our students and gave her life. Her family background is a mess. And tomorrow night at 6 o'clock, we wanted to do it this morning, but she's not coming until this evening. Tomorrow at 6 o'clock, We are going to baptize her, I hope. I haven't talked to her yet. I want to talk and make sure we're good. She understands what she's doing, but we're going to baptize her because she wants to be baptized. And she's being prevented from doing that by her family where she lives. And I look at a young girl who's committed her life to Christ. She says, I I want to be baptized. I talk to so many believers that are like, oh, I'm, I'm above that. I'm not going to humble myself like that. 
get all wet. I'm afraid of water. I'm, I don't want to do that. And here's this young girl who's like, wow, the Bible says I should do this. I'm in. Can, will you do this? Sure, we'll do it. Okay, a, we'll do it. And we'll send out. We'll put it on Facebook. We'll let you guys know where it's going to be. It may be in my hot tub at my house. It may be down at Lake Monroe. We don't know. But if we do it, we're going to invite you to it. If you can make it, great. If not, just celebrate and say, "Woo! I take delight with God right now. The Trinity takes delight in baptism. We're going to take delight in it. Listen, baptism doesn't change. It doesn't radically make you something different. It's just an act of obedience that declares to God, you're right and I'm not. And I'm just declaring, you're right. So I surrender. And I want everybody else to see, I surrender. That's it. It's your heart that matters. And that's what John is confronting in these people. He's like, many of you, you got baptized. Your heart's not surrendered. There's some of you, you got baptized and your heart surrendered. And I can see it in the way your life has changed and the way you're doing things differently. He goes on and it says, as, as he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph, son of Heli, dot, dot, dot. We'll go all the way down to the end of that lineage. Son of Abraham, son of God. Luke says, look, you can connect this guy Biblically, all the way back to Adam in the Old Testament. This is the true son of God who came through the line of Abraham, who came through the line of David, who is the one who's going to sit on the throne. And Luke lays it out from his, his dad's side, from Joseph's side. Matthew has a lineage that lays it out, and it's different than this lineage, from Mary's side. Two sides that prove that Jesus is the line that God was establishing in the universe for the salvation of mankind. That he was going to pay the debt we owed as the ultimate God-man. The ultimate Superman. He was going to die to save us. That's why we love the superhero movies. And that's exactly what he does. And why did he wait till 30? Well, here's the verse why. Because Jesus did everything according to the Old Testament. He never broke a law. He, he obeyed every of the 600 plus laws of the Old Testament. This is what it says in Numbers 4.2. Among the Levites, take a census of the Kohathites by their clans and their ancestral houses, men from 30 years old to 50 years old, everyone who's qualified to do the work at the tent of meeting. You were not qualified to serve as a priest of God until you were 30 years old under the Old Covenant. Now we're under a new covenant. That's not the case. Timothy was a very young man, probably not even 30, when he was the church was turned over to him by Paul. In this scenario, God's like, no, you got to wait till you're 30. So Jesus is like, okay, I'll wait. And he worked construction 18 years, from age 12 to 30, that's what he did. He worked construction. Waiting. Taking care of his family. Loving his parents. Not getting impatient. Man, I'm just doing, I'm not doing anything with my life. I'm just going to work every day, truck, and, you know, do my work and come home and not get paid anything. I know Jesus didn't have a truck. I, I get it. <laughs> on his camel, I don't know, <laughs> on his donkey. <laughs> I mean, like, why do I have to have this dumb life? No, Jesus is like, I'm just waiting. I can't do anything until I'm 30 because that's what the law says. So I'm just waiting. I can't wait. It's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. I'm just going to be faithful while I wait. This wasn't an accident. He did this in accordance with exactly what God said would happen. Okay, I'm 30 now. God, you ready? Yep, okay, good. And he went. It's a beautiful picture of obedience. Then Jesus returned from the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. This is where the Jews wandered around. He's at the Jordan. He's crossed through baptism, and now he's going back into the wilderness to fight the fight the Jews and the Israelites wouldn't fight. 
to win the battle that they failed for 40 years going in circles, the battle they failed in, Jesus is saying, I'm going to go back and win it. I'm going back. I don't need to go back. I'm the son of God. I've done everything right, but I'm going to go back and I'm going to do undo everything that they ruined. And so he goes back into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and they were over. He was hungry. Yeah, duh. If you didn't eat for 40 days, you'd be really hungry too, right? Try it sometime. Just go a few days and see how you feel, right? It doesn't get better after day 10, right? It's not like you get to day 10, you're like, wow, my stomach is shrunk. I don't, I don't feel nearly as hungry now. No, you still feel awful. 40 days, Saying, I, I'm going to trust God to be my substance. This was supernatural. This was awesome. Where the Israelites were always complaining about not having the food they wanted, not the clothing. They were always complaining. We don't have water. They were always complaining. Jesus is like, I'm not going to complain. I'm going to go to the wilderness and I'm going to fight. That God doesn't have to provide anything for me. I just need him. That's all I need. That's what he's doing. So then it goes, the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, it's written, man does not live on bread alone. I love this. Jesus doesn't get in a debate with him. Well, see what you, you don't understand, devil. He's just like, no, the word says the man must live by, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't live by bread that's good. I live by the bread of God. He also is the bread of God, the Bible says. And so he just answers him in obedience. He undoes this. He goes on. He says, so he took him up. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I'll give you their splendor and all this authority because it's been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, uh, no, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. <laughs> it's written. He doesn't say, hey, I'm the son of God. I'll tell you something. He's like, no, it's written. This is what the Trinity agreed on. We wrote it down. Like Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We agreed. This was the message. So I'm just backing up the message we agreed on like a millennium ago. Like this is a, here you go. It's just a simple answer. He goes on and he says, so he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the top of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And look what Satan does. He's so smart. For it is written. See, Satan's getting the game now. Right? Like, I'm going to use scripture against you. I'm going to be the false prophet. Well, it's also written, Mr. Son of God, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Isn't that what it says? And this is what people do to us today. This is what Christians will do. They'll look at you and be like, well, the Bible also says this. Really? Like, that, that's a twisting. Jesus looks at him and says, and Jesus answered him, um, it said don't test the Lord your God. You're trying to test me. You're trying to get me to test it. I'm not testing this. I'm going to trust God's word. And after the devil had finished every temptation, look at this, he departed for him, from him for a time. Listen, when people get baptized, I've always said this, I want to make t-shirts with a big target on them, front and back, big target, right? Like, like a bull, in a, like with crosshairs. And I just want to hand it to him and I say, welcome to the family. We get shot at. That's what happens. Like when you get baptized, you go to the wilderness. It's like all of a sudden, all you see is wilderness in your life. You realize how broken and how wild and how awful things are, and it begins to get on you. And if you don't get the word of God in you to encourage you and to build you up and to give you confidence in that mess, you'll be defeated like the Israelites. But if the word of God is in you, if you know God's word, if you're allowing him to penetrate your heart, then what happens is you start answering with, yeah, I know I feel that way, but this is what God says. This is what God says. This is what God says. This is what I'm going to do, and this is what I'm going to trust him with, and I don't care if I do die. I'm not, I'm not doing this. See, that's faith, and that's exactly what Jesus did. 
Ephesians 6.10 says this, finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against all the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take on the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. To take your stand. God doesn't want you to be some wimp. He wants you to take a stand like John did, like Jesus did, to say, I know this, and I'm going to stand on this, and I'm not backing down, because this is God's word. See, that's what's beautiful about this. The armor of God, that's battle again. Wait, armor, that's military armor. Yeah, you're in a war. If you choose to repent and trust God, you then become a warrior against what you left. And the enemy's coming after you. And Jesus, if Jesus couldn't bypass the enemy and bypass crucifixion and bypass the suffering, you think you're going to? And yet we got Christians running around saying, God wants you to be wealthy and healthy and prosperous and everything's going to be okay and fine in this world. And I go, I don't find that message in Scripture. I find where he does provide. I find that sometimes he does lift people up. But oftentimes those same people who are lifted up have everything taken from them just to see if they'll still stand. That's Job. The entire book of Job is that message. And this is what we see. It goes on. It's then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being acclaimed by everyone. He's getting to be popular. So he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. As usual, look at this. As usual. As usual. As usual. This means he went all the time. This was his usual practice to go to church, to go to synagogue. He was obeying. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So he was reading all the time. He loved to read the Bible. Hey, I want to read. Can I read today? Like, that was his normal response. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set thee free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Like, what did you just say? Because what he's saying is, I'm that guy. I, I'm the fulfillment of every Old Testament scripture. I'm the Messiah. And they're going, whoa. Is that, is that really what he just meant when he read that? Was, was he talking about himself? I mean, he is laying this out. And here's the deal. He says, I came to those who know. You ready for this? They're held captive. To those who know they're blind. To those who know they're oppressed. To know who, those who are looking for the Lord's favor. Those are the people I'm coming to. But those of you who say, I'm good, I'm not blind. I'm good. I'm not oppressed. I'm good. I, don't, I can't be there for you. Because that's not the heart of someone who understands the world they live in and the message of salvation that I give. But if you understand the mess you're in, then this is the message we carry. He began telling them, today as you listen to this scripture, it's been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son? Joseph's son, because they knew, you ready for this? They're going, wait, isn't this Joseph's son? No, he wasn't Joseph's son. He was born of a virgin. He was raised by Joseph. He wasn't Joseph's son. He said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. He's already knowing what they think, so he throws scripture. He says, doctor, heal yourself. 
So we've all heard that, so, we've, so all we've heard that took place in Capernaum, you do in your hometown also. He calls them out. He said, also, I assure you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day, and the sky was shut up for three years, six months, while a great famine came over the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elijah's time, there were many in Israel who had serious skin diseases, and not one of them, not one of them was healed. Only Nathan the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. He just went from the most popular guy ever. Like, they're like, oh, this guy's awesome. He comes to his hometown, and he looks at them, and he's like, I got to speak the truth to you. Here's the deal. Here's what's true. And the reason this is so offensive is because Elijah, what he's saying is, is in this day, it's like the olden days. Elijah couldn't do anything for God's people because they had no faith and they wouldn't trust him. So instead, he did it to non-believers. He did it to Gentiles. This woman in Sidon, this other woman who was a Syrian, he went to them to do these miracles. And they were offended. They're like, well, what about us? He's like, no, 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 no. You guys won't believe. All you want is the miracle. This widow and this this guy who was healed, the widow was actually at the moment Elijah helped her, was fixing a final meal to commit suicide with herself and her child. She was coming to the end of her life, ready to die when God sent Elijah to her. And Elijah said, trust me, trust me, trust the God that sent me on your behalf. And that's why they're so offended. They get the reference. And now they're ticked. They get up. They drove him out of town. They brought him to the edge of their town that was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. This is not the good start to ministry. You're baptized. You go into the wilderness. You come. People like you. Then all of a sudden you, you tell the truth, and now they want to hurl you over a cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. I have no idea what that means. I don't know how he got through the crowd. I don't know if he like became invisible, like invisible man. I don't know. I don't know if he said something. We don't, God hasn't given us permission to know, but somehow he's like, whoop, I'm gone. This is what Paul says. This is for you guys to think through as we wrap up. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, Paul is addressing baptism. They, they were saying, well, we've been baptized by John. And he says, I get that. And that was good. It was good that you repented. But do you believe in Jesus? And if you believe in Jesus, you need to be rebaptized. You need to be baptized in his baptism. Mark 16, 14 this is what Jesus says. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had been resurrected. This is after Jesus came back to life. Then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to, to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Notice he doesn't say, but whoever does not believe and is baptized will be condemned. He could have said that. He doesn't. He says it's about the heart belief. It's not about baptism. 
It's not you get baptized and now I'm saved. It's no, it's, it's a heart issue. And he says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. That's what John was saying. Repent and believe that you can be forgiven. But whoever does not will be condemned. Let me ask you this. Do you see that your mission, do you see that God's mission for you and for I is to seek and to save? We are to go into all the world and preach the gospel that there is a Savior who came to seek and to save the lost. We are looking for people that admit they're lost, admit they're broken, and we're saying there's someone who's seeking you. There's someone who wants to save you. It's the God of the universe, and he gave his life for you and came back to life to prove it. And he's asking you to commit your life to him, and then he's asking you to connect to his family through the act of baptism. Baptism doesn't get you any, in any better with God. It doesn't make you any more spiritual. It's just a symbol that says, I'm a part of the family. And that's exactly what Jesus says to them as he's leaving in his final message before he's transfigured and goes to heaven and we're still waiting on him today. He says, our mission is to do what I did. You are to go out into the world to seek and to save the lost and you are to look for people that will believe and you are to baptize them. And if they don't accept that message, you need to look at them and say, I'm scared for you, that you might be condemned. And I don't want that for you. I don't want you to have to face that. I want you to face a God who paid the condemnation you deserve on your behalf. And I want you to live in that all your days, the fruit of repentance, so that you have a life that you cling to and that you love. See, we've got thousands of students coming back to town. We've got thousands of international students. We've got people coming from all over. Most of us are just annoyed by it all. Now, Bloomington doesn't help with construction, but we're just annoyed by it all. Don't be. Don't be. Be excited at the fact that you get to seek and to save, to, to be like Christ. And if you don't know him, surrender. Surrender now. John is saying do you understand that you need to give your heart? And if you'll do that, he says, I will forgive you. You will not be condemned. I will justify you. You don't have to work and get salvation. It's a free gift offered that we receive and then we respond in gratitude to that gift. And if we don't have gratitude for that gift, but we wander around in our lives complaining like the children of Israel, we need to check and see if we really understand the gift we got and the person who gave it and the person who loves us. That's the message of this book. That's the message as we go through the book of Luke, as we lay the groundwork. It's this message of Jesus going out in the world to seek and to save you and I and asking us to do the same.